she just went off she felt good one day so she went off her meds as if like there's no reason that they went off their meds that they they don't understand themselves they are not self-aware we don't know how we really feel you just felt good for one day against yourself you didn't need them and of course you were wrong to think that and it just it all of these lines like what they have in common is it's just stripping us like as people with psych labels as psych patients like stripping away our autonomy saying we're not capable of making decisions that every single thing we do can be traced back to that mental illness and that's what's really so insidious about a lot of this is that it's because we're labeled crazy nothing we say or do can ever have any validity because we're crazy Welcome back to Disorderland. Today we're talking about the experiences of psychiatric survivors. And we have a great conversation with Maggie Leppert, a survivor working toward psych abolition, who you may know as the Booksmart Bimbo on Instagram. We talk about her psych abolition reels, what psychiatric gaslighting looks like, why talking about informed consent is not med shaming, and how psychiatry co-opted anti-stigma work from survivors. But first, Aisha is going to read a few listener responses to questions we asked on our Substack about your experiences with psychiatry. We, we talked about our experiences before on the podcast, and uh, so we wanted to, I guess, build a more diverse narrative of how people have experienced uh, just how they've been treated as they've navigated the psychiatric system. So we asked three questions to get this conversation going, and those three questions are, one, what experiences radicalized your views on psychiatry and mental health? How did you come to see your mental distress through a political lens? And what's the most annoying misconception about psych abolition that you've encountered? I guess just to really ask people, what was the aha moment they had when they've when they basically saw the system for what it is and kind of let go of their previously held socialized beliefs? So the first one is by Muna. Okay, so what experiences radicalized your views? So I've always had, and this is the response, I've always had a radical understanding of mental health in the sense that I've understood my mental health issues to be tied to my environment and born out of the society I lived in. However, I thought that psychiatry would be the cure for me because it was the only thing I encountered that acknowledged these problems as problems. My community was skeptical of psychiatry, but that skepticism led to denial of abuse and its effects and an unwillingness to do anything about it. I thought that psychiatry was the only option for addressing these problems and didn't understand that they were solutions to help my suffering outside of psychiatry. As soon as I got into the psychiatry field, I encountered racism and misogyny at every turn. I started treatment in a research study because it was an accessible way to get treated and get paid for it. At that time, I was silent in therapy because all of my memories and experiences were too uh, painful to speak of. I literally couldn't get it out. The psychiatrist took my silence as indignance and accused me of not working hard enough. Jesus. Uh, She was licensed to help me, but couldn't even recognize my trauma as trauma. When I did speak and explain the deeply traumatic misogyny I was living through, she tried to convince me that I wasn't seeing it correctly, that boys will be boys, and I wasn't being positive enough. The first time I was prescribed medications, my therapist, a different one this time, sent me to a 24-hour psych ward for suicidal ideation, another trick to get me meds quickly. The psychiatrist there prescribed me with the highest dose of an antidepressant to start with, And anybody knows that this is a practice to be dangerous. Prescribing too high prescriptions to Black people is common in medicine. I grew 
I grew 50 pounds over a few months, felt manic and stopped taking it. I tried another psychiatrist who belittled me for being a survivor of sexual assault and prescribed me med- medications that she picked out of a pocketbook she kept on her desk. I wow. try one. <laughs> and that's true. And that, yeah, I try one for a while and stopped taking it. Try healing on my own. Every therapist I had has treated my suffering as an individual problem and questioned me whenever I tried to explain it under any other lens. When I found a therapist that was a black woman, I felt much better because I finally had someone to confide in who didn't immediately try to convince me that my experiences weren't real. She didn't propose psychiatric or individualized interventions, just allowed me to process my feelings in a safe space, even be silent if I needed to. And I started finding my own ways to improve my ADHD symptoms and live with my trauma. I was happiest working from home, um, building my own schedule, building connections, and able to talk about my experiences without being gaslit. I've gone back to struggling since I returned to an in-office position, but I've gotten a taste of how change in environment can radically alter mental health, which gives me hope and inspirations. These experiences helped me, helped me come to terms with the racist and misogynistic roots of psychiatry. It led me to find different ways to be rooted in connections with people who were generous enough to help me with my suffering. I'm really concerned about the growing amount of people who believe pain should be only processed with a therapist. I feel like there, that is another commodification of mental health being treated as radical thought. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we also, we don't, we talk about psychiatry all the time, but then we forget that therapy can also be same thing. Like it yeah. sounded like there's a lot of like, uh, back and forth. Well, there's a lot of like gaslighting going on. Yeah. Yeah. Like the therapist saying like, boys will be boys, like, you yeah. know, and not taking really any addressing of, anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that part about silence as indignance, like, <laughs> Mm-hmm. They didn't even feel like they could be silent, you know, and that was interpreted <laughs> as as like uh, like a hostile thing. That's just like or inadequacy, so I guess. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very specific, actually, to therapy specifically, because I mean, I talk about uh, this all the time with folks that I'm working on related to trauma, like trauma isn't best addressed through talk therapy just because we don't know what the hell to talk about. And silence is the common response because it is like by default, the like freeze stuck response. And we don't really know where the pain comes from. So therapy Mm -hmm. ends up being another source of shame and guilt because you think that you're just like bad at therapy at the end because you're like in there for years, like me nearly a decade, not knowing that I had to really address like these things that happened in my childhood that I didn't remember. So Mm -hmm. it's like, that's, I guess, what, what, what Moon is talking about that, you know, the silence came from like not having these memories and then the therapist made them feel bad, like they weren't working hard enough literally working hard enough. (laughs) Yeah. I feel I, that's something I never realized. Like I did in therapy where I would try to, like, I'd be sitting there and I would not have an answer to like the question I was asked. And I would just try to come up with something that I thought was like good. Like something to say that they wanted you, like they wanted you to hear. And then it becomes like, it becomes more like school, you know, where you're taught to Mm -hmm. bullshit. So I'm giving mm-hmm. answer that I think they want to hear rather than what I'm really feeling. Cause I have no idea what I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a weird experience. Cause then I was inside myself being like, why am I just saying this? Even though it's not actually like, <laughs> it's not actually what I think or feel like. Cause I don't know what I'm like thinking or feeling, you know? And I think eventually therapy ends up being like the epitome of neoliberalism to me because it ends up being about saying and pretending and making everything look good and like mm-hmm. working through these things with this positive mindset and just, you know, like thought replacement and just all these things that are all just about like taking the superficial surface and just making it prettier and nothing yeah. happens to anything in terms of the source or whatever's underneath. 
well, like it's doing the work, right? <laughs> you have to yeah. do the work or like, and, and like she said, like the therapist thought she wasn't working hard enough. Mm-hmm. It's like. <laughs> everything is about doing <laughs> under mm-hmm. capitalism, everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going to read the next comment that we have. This is from Emma. So what experiences radicalized your views? Uh, I got the whole package. Shrink dad, psychoanalyst mom, Jesus. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Gaslit before I could talk. <laughs> that's, that's, that <laughs> describes, I'm, I, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I had to crack their code before I could crack psychiatries. That's tough. It took 45 years, a thesis on the topic and a heap of degassing. I was a fawning CPTSD machine and, and uh, neurodivergent as fuck. I didn't waltz into authentic friendships at least not with people who could help me process this shrink down installed the everything that doesn't look like it's descended straight from Freud or Darwin is dangerous woo woo module. <laughs> and thus I never strayed from that paradigm. Somatics came to the rescue. Uh, my palm struck my forehead firmly when the penny dropped. Uh, how did you come to see your mental distress through a parallel lens? I got hit by the gender bus and went full trans anarchy a couple of years before I saw the colonial threats tying psychiatry to other forms of state control. I coincidentally ended up in a psych ward where the nurse in charge overreached her job description by some margin in order to cause me harm. That's the moment my indignation sparked. I read the entirety of um, the NSW local mental health act and raged that night and I've not stopped hissing since. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm going to answer the last question about misconception a little different uh the most annoying misconception about psychiatry perpetrated by abolitionists and defenders alike is that at least some parts of psychiatric taxonomy are made by carving nature at its joints i guess this is in reference to like Mm -hmm. even people that are quote-unquote progressive about psychiatry think that you know there's the real crazy disorders or there's some sort of mm-hmm. bioessentialism that always creeps in right or that mm-hmm. yeah neurodivergence yes but that's because brains are inherently like you know there are some real adhd brains and real autistic brains etc mm-hmm. um and the unreality of the 19th century hysteria or neurasthenia, uh, neurasthenia were uh, built in for a particular purpose and the psychi and the structural purpose of psychiatric knowledge uh, in the 19th century wasn't vastly different to its structural purpose today. It was and remains to be to, to be uh, a perfect workers exemplary to maintain all the supremacies, so patriarchy, white supremacy, ableism, et cetera, and to disappear mm-hmm. people and behaviors that appear different from the perfect worker, father, mother, student, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's interesting. I think like trans and like gender <laughs> epiphanies can be a really huge catalyst for political radicalization because once you like pull one little thread it then unravels the whole, the whole thing, thing. kind of yeah. unravels and you're like oh shit <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, feel, I feel like people have different places where they pull that thread right I think it can be anything yeah. from like understanding ecology to like your own gender to like religion breaking from rel- whatever the hell institution it is whatever binary whatever social construct it is but then eventually everything falls apart because you do have that moment of like wait all of this stuff is made up and it's used for control and oh no yeah <laughs> I've fallen into it too damn it <laughs> yeah and the the thing about carving nature at its joints I think that's that's a quote from something wait let me just really I didn't I didn't I actually didn't know that because huh. I've read it before then huh it comes from 
Plato. Oh, okay. Asking how and why people carve up and partition the world. So like, I guess it's in reference to like science, how science in general, like, like reduces things to boxes. Yeah. And like, okay. Take everything, categorize it. Um, Right. Right. And yeah, like Emma, just biological predeterminism (laughs) of some kind, I guess. Yeah. So like, yeah, there are a lot of even leftists who are like, oh, absolutely. (laughs) These categories are like legit. um, Yeah. And I think that's true. That doesn't, doesn't really matter. People identifying as abolitionists, people identifying as anarchists or whatever, you know, we've had people like that in our comments, always criticizing us in terms of like, they get close, right. But they're not willing to go all the way. And like, that's, I think how I describe it now, like they're so close, but then when it comes to really, truly letting go by essentialism, that's so difficult for people because that is something that we've been ingrained with since we were children. It's like the earliest Mm -hmm. conceptions of how we make sense of the world, like the earliest Mm -hmm. conception. I understand why it's hard, but yeah, it's interesting how that always ends up being like the last frontier. (laughs) Yeah. And not like being able to connect the politics, I think, Mm -hmm. which is also, I think what, what Emma was saying Mm -hmm. at the end Mm -hmm. that like, like we can see like hysteria was invented for instance, to like Mm -hmm. silence women who were experiencing trauma, but we don't like connect that now to like, nowadays we have like borderline Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. bipolar even is often Mm -hmm. used like in that way. And I think we talked about that when we were writing uh, our posts. And I think I emphasized how it was so much easier to explain this stuff to people by showing them first how race science was a thing and is still a thing and how it's still like Mm -hmm. a defining factor of how medicine is practiced. But it's still like talked about, like even when you get 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 taught the stuff like in any realm or even talk about it it's almost as if it's always a thing of the past right like we always talk about it as this is how it used to be and like now it's not like Mm -hmm. that anymore and um but when (laughs) people still get close to understanding it within the concept of race like again understanding that race was helped to be constructed as a real biological thing by science and Mm -hmm. therefore this is all (laughs) but that leap is like (laughs) is like always like no 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 not that though. <laughs> That's a real mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think which we will talk about in our segment um, with Maggie, there's like this resistance to criticizing the DSM because that that is like stigma, you know, like any mm-hmm. criticism of it is like called a stigmatization of like mental illness. And that is used in this way to like defend psychiatry and to defend like medicalization of mm-hmm. distress, which is just really insidious because it was started by psych <laughs> survivors who were mm-hmm. saying like, hey, stop stigmatizing us. Mm-hmm. Classic co-optation. <laughs> yeah. I'll read the next one. Okay, this is by Laurel. Um, I was forcibly admitted to psych ward when I experienced severe psychosis for the first time. I realized I had to lie to the professionals for them not to treat me a certain way. A psychology was a minor for my degree. I was aware that I was experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia during the pandemic due to my withholding information. They diagnosed me as having bipolar and told me I needed to take medication for the rest of my life. This didn't sit well with me, but it made me realize that diagnoses are really subjective and they don't even try to understand the traumas that a person may have endured that could lead to psychosis. I worked mm-hmm. through my traumas without antipsychotics, and as I did, the symptoms were the symptoms were allayed, thus proving that if mental health professionals only took time to care, many yeah. people could heal naturally. 
Mistreatment by professionals made me realize that persons with mental health issues need love and care the most, but getting, keep getting re-traumatized by the system. I started seeing my mental distress through a political lens when I realized that most of my symptoms of mental illnesses, illness that I displayed were really my mind's way of trying to survive and understand existence in a messed up society. I then understood that that the longer they are framed as symptoms of biological issues instead of spiritual and social ones, harmful structures designed to keep people mentally enslaved won't lose power. I found it extremely annoying that I got depressed while awakening to the fact that church, state, and capitalism are causing all the environmental and mental health issues we are suffering from. But people thought that my problem was that I was unmedicated. Yeah, it's so uh, condescending, you know? <laughs> Like, oh, you're not taking your meds. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I guess we'll talk. We we talked a lot about that with, with Maggie about just how that kind of gaslighting, right? You must be off your meds. And because mm-hmm. the question is sanity when it comes to psychiatry, like that's a unique thing that's in question that that's mm-hmm. enough to like discard every everything related to autonomy and agency out the door. Like the moment you question a person's sanity, they can't supposedly make decisions for themselves. <laughs> yeah. Like she said, you have to lie. Yeah. To doctors. Like I, (laughs) I like at first, when I first went to see a psychologist, I was like, well, I have to be super honest because it'll be like really important data and they need to know (laughs) all of it. And then I just got like totally fucked (laughs) and, uh, realized that was kind of like, I guess, naive of me. And I have to be more careful about like what I say. You know? Yeah. And I think, so I think I was more aware of that because I probably had my instances of like, like real interactions with psychiatry af- like in the middle of my training in the healthcare system. So I was mm-hmm. trained in understanding how like reporting works and how like healthcare providers are mandated to like basically call the cops <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, like incarcerate people, institutionalize them for like a whole bunch of certain things. And I think then it was very obvious when I got those questionnaires for my work or from, you know, therapist I was seeing, the psychiatrist I was seeing, where I was like, mm-hmm. no, I'm doing great. I do not ever think about at all killing myself. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> what I do you mean? I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? Suicidal <laughs> ideation. I'm so happy. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, yeah. that actually does show, I think, something that's really, that's really shitty, which is that if you go through medical training of some kind, you do know mm-hmm. how to navigate the healthcare system in ways that are just not accessible to people outside of it. Right. Like even yeah. things in terms of who to go to, what are ways to get around long wait, like long wait times, right? Like which ER mm-hmm. to go to and which, which ER not to go to, if you want to wait for 16 hours, like little things like that to like, just being like, never, <laughs> never be honest when it comes to your mental health is just like yeah. stuff, you know, and like we apply that and we tell our family and friends as much as possible, but I really do wish, mm-hmm. and we'll talk with Maggie, Maggie about that, I guess, how this should be public knowledge in terms of like who, like, which are the providers you can go to that are going to protect you and take care of you versus like be cops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was interesting that she said that she like kind of diagnosed her own experience as schizophrenia, but then held back certain things and then mm-hmm. got a different diagnosis, mm-hmm. which is like, yeah, just really shows because that there's like, no way to objectively measure anything. Yeah, it's not like they can just yeah. run a test and be like, let's figure it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh (laughs) Aha. Well, and I mean, I think you talked about this in in the first episode before where um, 
uh, re we referenced uh, certain studies that were conducted to show provider uh, lack of agreement between providers. So people would, the same people would be sent blinded to like different providers and they would all get different diagnoses, just showing mm -hmm. that there's no real like validity or reliability between psychiatric diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Inter-rater reliability. Yes. So it's not <laughs> yes. good. Yeah. <laughs> Very bad. <laughs> there was a really big article that came out. I think it was in the New York Times, New York Times Magazine. Um, that was about the hearing voices movement. Mm -hmm. Did you read it? Mm -hmm. I think you sent it to um, me, yeah. And then after that, there was like an article that came out in Mad at America that was like a response to the comment section because oh, yeah, this comment section was just like, <laughs> was like horrendous, like full of people who were saying like, you know, all this stuff that we hear about how like the only way to treat psychosis is is antipsychotics and it's really dangerous to suggest that there are other ways. And like the hearing voices movement, if people are not familiar, is like uh, this group that's focused on peer support and like finding meaning in your um, experiences. And they basically think that like you can't like heal from the distress of psychosis by uh, taking meds because you have to find some kind of meaning in them to kind of like work through that because they're caused by like traumatic experiences. Yeah. And I think that's the lens that like a lot of people are approaching trauma through, which is like more of acceptance and, and moving through it rather than just like fixing it, making it go away, curing it, treating it, et cetera. Yeah. But there's like, it's the comment section of this article was just like, it really showed how that's still like such a like very radical idea, I think in, yeah. at least in like the public perception Especially for psychosis, though, I think Rick, we've talked about this before, where now maybe mm -hmm. there's a little bit more mainstream acceptance around like ADHD or like autism, less so with ADHD, maybe more so with autism, just because there's stimulants involved. But uh, or no, just less so with more so with ADHD. It's no, more like less mainstream. so, uh, less so as in like the idea of like you don't necessarily have to take medications to treat it right? Like with ADHD, oh, yeah. it's still more because of the avail mm -hmm. widespread availability of stimulants, right? That there's still, it mm -hmm. is still, I think, even in the progressive spaces, right? Like there's a reliance on stimulants to like make cure ADHD or fix mm -hmm. it or whatever. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, there's autis autistic communities tend to be a little bit more radical, maybe in that way. Oh yeah. Um, so, but with psychosis, right? Anything like anything in the realm of psychosis and maybe personality disorders, that's still like that bioessentialist extreme where people just cannot let go of like you cannot exceptionalize ADHD autism etc and then be like but these are the real crazy people right like yeah and that's usually what yeah. we see commonly yeah it's like a total uh biomedical view of psychosis like that it has no there are no causes there's no like um it's just like a malfunction of the brain you know and specifically fear mongering, right? Like around it. I think that's also, I mean, it's, it's more so specifically, I think because of like the history of the prison industrial complex and how psychosis and antipersonal disorders have been like hijacked mm -hmm. to be, to justify mm -hmm. construction of prisons and like expansion of the school to prison pipeline, prison industrial complex to make certain people that are, you know, hearing voices or seeing things or anything that's under the umbrella of like having social skills that are divergent, I guess, to mm -hmm. be considered as like actual quote unquote dangerous people, right? Like the idea of like 
psychopaths or sociopaths and anything under yeah. the, it, it is really just like this criminalization comes in when it comes to psychosis and like antisocial personality disorders. Yeah, I was reading, I started reading um, the book Mad in America, which is mm. uh, mostly about like the history of like psychiatry. And he starts out talking about how like the enlightened, all the enlightenment philosophers thought that um, madness was like a form of like, of like being an animal. And yep. like, it was I think like that was inherently back with like the degeneracy theory. Yeah, I think that was like when, was it that around came, that came like after that, but okay, like it, okay. it, it started out with this, like these enlightenment ideas about like reason and like madness. And they called like people who experienced madness, like brutes and animals Yes, okay. and, uh, did some really horrible things <laughs> to them, like basically torture because they thought that that would like, like, you know, shake them in back into reason or something. Um, I guess the same and logic behind still, like electroconvulsive therapy and all those. Yeah. Yeah. I think that kind of has still like carried over into mm-hmm. now, like we still look at like psychosis as this like unique, like state that's like almost not human, but like, it is a very human thing because there are so many things that can cause it. Like even like, like grief or like childbirth, like mm-hmm. all these things. That Literally are, the world really we live in living under capitalism yeah. constantly, like depending on how, how marginalized you are, like it makes perfect sense. But mm-hmm. I think that's the one, yeah, psychosis especially is where any form of institutionalization is more so justified and commonly accepted, even in like mainstream progressive communities. It's like, mm-hmm. that's, that's, you know, the, the reasoning used for like behind like mass shootings, for example, right. Or yeah. um, to justify like forced restraint forced medication, incarceration, like all of those, it's like automatically people just lose agency when any label of like psychosis is attached. Special thanks to everyone who submitted answers to our questions and got involved in the thread. We're going to do some more of those discussions over there. So if you want to participate, be sure to subscribe at disorderland.substack.com. Okay, let's get into our interview with psych survivor Maggie Leppert, also known on Instagram as the Booksmart Bimbo. So first of all, we love your reels. I don't really know anyone else that is making content like that, especially because there's just like so much mental health content that is just like garbage. Yeah. (laughs) So we were wondering what inspired you to start making psych abolition reels. Um, Yeah. So I, I've been like involved in like a lot of social justice stuff for a long time. Um, And, you know, just like on my personal social media pages, I was like always posting about stuff. And a lot of times like people really liked what I was posting and they'd be like, can I copy and paste? Can I share it? Um, And a lot of people had like encouraged me um, like make um, a page like for you to talk about this stuff um, because all my um, personal stuff was private. And people wanted to be able to share stuff. So I started an account and I originally was just going to do like general, like intersectional disability justice. But I found that, you know, the psych abolition content, people were really craving spaces like that. And I was getting a lot of responses. Like, I didn't know anyone else felt like this. Like your posts made me feel less alone. And like, I thought that I was crazy and um, And that was really special to me. And I felt like if I could contribute to that, which was something that I 
really needed, like when I was going through that stuff. So I just kind of like pivoted and I still talk about other issues, but started to focus more on that. And um, it all just kind of like happened. (laughs) I think, I mean, yeah, I think I sent you just your reel. Mm -hmm. Like it was like a few months ago, like, but it was it was because we were sort of like shocked that someone else was doing like very aligned work that was like very critical and abolitionist Mm -hmm. take on mental health that was just like we were just like I don't even know like how we like happened upon this but because it's it's so rare to see that among like the jungle I guess of reels and everything that's out there right now where there are a lot of people making reels about mental health they're just a certain you know like neoliberal very individualistic yeah. self-care self-help sort of like that's the focus so it was it was, it was refreshing I guess to see a critical take yeah and, and like, like they're just sorry yeah I was just gonna say that like y'all have also like I've kind of felt the same about y'all like a lot of times I always felt like I had to like appease others (laughs) um and so a lot of times I would see what you were posting and be like it would give me like that bravery to be like no I can say what I honestly feel (laughs) like if you like especially early on I guess like when we got a little more um I don't know, maybe a little more attention uh, for like, do we just started doing posts, right? Initially, I think a lot of the back and forth that would happen before we even do a post was like, like so much of it was reactionary out of the fear of being reprimanded Mm -hmm. for being like having this critical abolitionist take without constantly, you know, saying basically without having the like fluffy lingo to make people feel really comfortable about how you know Mm -hmm. we get called for example med shamers every time we talk critically about psychotropic (laughs) drugs right like just because we're criticizing psychotropic drugs it's just like you're therefore then invalidating people's suffering that are using medication to cope with their suffering right even though that's like Mm -hmm. logically I guess for me that it was more confusing for me because I did this work in the context of like just general medicine and healthcare. So there mm-hmm. it's a little bit more like obvious that you can criticize the healthcare system and medicine. And that doesn't mean you're criticizing people that like have to take drugs <laughs> to survive. You know what I mean? Like, but you're still criticizing like the context of medicine. But it was, yeah, we we were very, very worried about like how we'd be perceived. And I mean, we did get backlash like we still do. Mm-hmm. But I think at some point we just had to just say, that's it. Fuck it. Like. We were tired of more, I guess, anticipating people's responses and then acting accordingly. (laughs) Yeah, I felt really the same way. And I think that it kind of, to me, it reinforced, you know, like, this is the problem that we're trying to address, that this, like, propaganda is out there. And, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would be saying, like, the same things as some of these critics because that, like, (laughs) you know, you buy into it. Um, because you're taught like this is the the just thing to do. And it's it's when you really kind of get into it and think critically about it, you realize kind of all of the um, like misgivings. But, um, you know, we're we're taught these lines and we're taught, you know, it, you are a med shamer if you um, talk about the harms of these drugs. Um, and we're taught that the people who critique drugs are people who have never taken them. Um, which is all a lie. Um, so I've really started talking a lot about that, um, mm-hmm. like on my social media um, and like within psych survivor spaces. Cause I think a lot, we're really lucky that we have like trailblazers of our movement still with us and still doing the work. Um, but I think that there is like a gap 
mm-hmm. between um, some of the older generations of like they were what they were up against is very different than what we're up against. Like this kind of woke washing mm-hmm. is fairly new. And so I talk a lot about it because I yeah. think that we have to adapt our strategy yeah. to understand that. And it's I guess it's new for for the realm of like maybe like mental health and like psych, but it's sort of like the regular cycle of what capitalism and neoliberalism do to like any radical movement. Right. Which is like eventually co-opt it to bring it into the like mainstream. And I think that's like what I noticed early on, even that like made me not focus so much about on mental health, where I was like doing like like prison police abolition focused work just because it was like way more normalized to be abolitionist in those spaces whereas here everything was about like giving people solutions that are just about getting them back into the system right so get you well enough to like get you plugged back in back into capitalism and that is like yeah it was interesting to see that that arc happen in a way where so much of it is falls into the umbrella of like wellness and self-help and self-care now right and people don't even see that as like insidious they see it at best maybe as like useless or like make fun of it but really like that is like neoliberalism's like arm of how they maintain capitalism by like getting people to well controlling them by like basically manipulating their minds right so they can control themselves and it's like the easiest way to like rather than overt violence is more covert right so mm-hmm. you don't need to be overtly authoritarian you can just like package this growth mindset and this like constant make people into like mm-hmm. projects right that are eternally adapting to like capitalism and eternally wanting to like reinvent themselves and find ways to like ease their suffering just so enough so they can get back to being like productivity and grind culture focused yeah in um i'm in like an abolition book club um and just um last week we were talking about the book um laziness does not does not exist which i love um and we were talking about how like this whole idea of like executive dysfunction Mm -hmm. that like Mm -hmm. we've been thinking like oh if if i'm not able to initiate this task then i have executive dysfunction instead of being like maybe this is my body's signal telling me like we're done for the day like we don't we're we're being forced to operate at a productivity capacity that isn't natural right it's all about self-optimization um, now it's like how can you fine-tune yeah. yourself to be this like ideal capitalist worker and rid yourself of mm-hmm. any divergence and any trait that doesn't mm-hmm. like fit to be able to be this like and there's this blanket of like positivity right attached to all of this such that mm-hmm. and I think that's partly why we get criticized a lot and I've been like thinking more critically now about like why like abolitionist takes especially in radical education gets criticized it's because it doesn't sit well with people right and we're especially I think like western liberal countries a lot of the like propaganda is so much focused on like always being positive always focus on positivity right so that like leads to people just not knowing how to handle like discomfort or like heavy emotions or just overtly criticize anything that doesn't like fall right in line with whatever's validating them. And 
it's like partly why it's so hard to communicate honestly with people rather than like because the like rhetoric of what social media is it's an inauthentic by design right like people are like curating mm-hmm. these fake profiles of themselves like giving the illusion of like a perfect life right and having this like virtual universe where we all exist in and now then you know when we our voices sort of pop up where we're saying something that still clearly shows that we care about people right but like really much deeper way of caring beyond the superficial Mm -hmm. solutions band-aid solutions like deeper solutions right deeper community building it becomes immediately just like rejected just because it like is a a front to that positivity mindset (laughs) Well, and Maggie, you have kind of like a series where you're breaking down these different discourses that show up. And I think you called it psychiatric gaslighting. (laughs) Could you maybe like explain like how that looks or what are some really common things that people say? Yeah. um, So I, I started that I did a series last year on psychiatric propaganda and people really liked that. Um, and so I asked people, you know, what do you want me to do next? And so gaslighting was something that came up. So um, what I've been trying to do is show people like actual examples of what it looks like, um, because it doesn't it's not always as obvious as you might think if you're not on the receiving end of it. Yeah. Um, so I actually was just working on um one post that I'll be posting tomorrow um, where I talked about um, this idea that you just have to try a bunch of different meds until you find the right one. Um, And you know how that sounds like what's wrong with that, but what it really is, it's normalizing this extremely dangerous practice. And then it's saying that that's, you know, if the psych meds don't work the first time, it's not the psych meds fault. You just have to keep trying. Meanwhile, you're destroying your, brain and your body by going on and off and on and off these meds so rapidly, which is objectively very difficult for your body to process. Um, But then it's always the blame is back on you, back on the patient that you're crazy. There's something wrong with you that you need to fix. And it's never psychiatry's fault. You know, another one I talked about was, um, oh, she just went off, she felt good one day, so she went off her meds. Mm. As if, like, mm. there's no reason that they went off their meds, that mm. they they don't understand themselves. They are not self-aware. We don't know how we really feel. You just felt good for one day against yourself. You didn't need them. And, of course, you were wrong to think that. And it just, it all of these lines, like, what they have in common is it's just stripping us, like, as people with psych labels, as psych patients, like stripping away our autonomy saying we're not capable of making decisions that every single thing we do can be traced back to that mental illness and that's Mm -hmm. what's really so insidious about a lot of this is that it's because we're labeled crazy Mm -hmm. nothing we say or do can ever have any validity because we're crazy yeah I think so everything you said is like this theme that pops up like I work one-on-one with a lot of psych survivors and the narrative is like so similar in terms of like maybe the nuances of like the medications that they're struggling with are different but it's always the same arc of and not just medication but even the diagnosis process right there's a lot of gaslighting involved there because you just get multiple diagnoses from different people and none of them like line up or like none of them make sense with everything that you have and they all overlap and then there's a lot of confusion around it and there is then again that gaslighting of like okay it's your problem right and 
something's wrong with you that you're not fitting these labels then and you should be fitting these labels right and then the series of like it's so normalized to go through so many medications and then come out totally like not helped at all and it's interesting how like again psychiatry is like the one branch of medicine where that's so normalized and the moment you add that same context even with like a diagnosis or treatment to any other branch of medicine it's like appalling already right like can you imagine getting like seven different diagnoses of different types of cancer and like no one can agree with with each other and at the end of it like you still feel like it's your fault and you don't even have a single diagnosis that's helpful and then you have no literature to tell you like which medication might be effective right so then you get put on like seven different forms of chemotherapy and immunotherapy and like all of them are giving you all these side effects it's like nothing is really that normalized except with psychiatry where like you could have zero answers and it's still the patient's fault right and that power dynamic that's really set up and I think ultimately the the one thing that I've also seen that's really common with like all the survivors that I work with is that that shame that they that comes from no diagnosis or no treatment that works for you and no diagnosis that fits it's like it goes back to making people feel bad that like they're not fitting the label well enough right or like even when it comes to thinking about the medications and the side effects that you get, like you said, because then the automatically your sanity is in question now, then the way that carceral logic works is if you question someone's sanity, then you are depriving them of now agency, right? Because they can't make decisions for themselves. So I had like a lot of Uh, a lot of folks that I work with say when they express their opinion about how they wanted to get off meds, then they get, basically they get, they, they get told by their psychiatrist that like, we don't trust your judgment anymore. Right. Because this is like your disorder making you like relapse or whatever it is. Right. And then automatically you have like, it goes back to then the, the forced institutionalization, right. The question comes up where like, you can't be as honest with them because you're so afraid of being locked up. And I know you've made a couple of like reels that talk about like institutionalization too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one thing that's really helped me kind of understand this is going through like the historical lens. Um, because I think we take this like medicalization of psychiatry as a given. Um, but that was something that was created. All of these diagnostic labels, all of like psychiatry's discipline, all these meds, they were created. And to go back historically and see the process by which we are, which all of these things are created, um, like that's really, I think, kind of opened my eyes to understand that like historically, like psychiatry, it was not seen as a branch of medicine. Um, It was seen as a pseudoscience and the reason why that changed is that psychiatrists wanted to make more money. And if they could be doctors, they could make more money. They could tap into insurance. They can tap into hospital funds. And so they created so many of these systems to be seen as medicine instead of it being the other way around, instead of coming from a medical practice and understanding things in a scientific way, it's very, fabricated um and also i think generally like this is like we talk in our previous episode a little bit about um the idea of objectivity right like how there is this idea of like the objective truth using like medical jargon and scientific labels is built even though there might not be any validity to like how objective that truth really is um so i think all of that comes from the colonial context in which like modern systems of health care have been developed, right? And psychiatry happens to be maybe the most overt 
way of seeing them as as a system of like subjugation control because they were overtly used to like demonize rebellion and resistance of any kind and then round people up that were arbitrarily you didn't even need any evidence to like you know it's like an arm of the justice system where really there was no burden of proof right you could just label someone crazy and then lock them up and that was sufficient without any due process so it became like this arm of the carceral system that was born out of a need to like lock people up where it was easier to do it. And like, it was way more easier to do it even through the justice system, right? And almost now it's an extension of the carceral system that people don't understand because like you're not now just relying on institutions to do the sedation and the forced medication. Now people will go home with these drugs and sedate themselves, right? And numb themselves and get themselves to go back to work. So it's like this insidious system of like population control that again, goes back to like the idea of like self-help and self-care, right? If you're making people feel fundamentally like they're the problem, like it, what better tool than to get them to self-correct constantly and always improve themselves and always want to like aspire to conform and assimilate back into capitalism, right? It's like this covert tool of violence that's way more useful, right? Way more like clever in that way, I guess. And even, even specifically like all branches of medicine are like steeped in racism and like all sorts of discrimination, right? Just because of the context of how they were developed. So it's almost like there's no real objectivity. The only way we can even do this is by recognizing that like all of the existing biases produced by like humanity are going to go into whatever was developed at that time period, right? And because we're still relying on systems developed like not even long ago, right? These are like 200, 300 years old. So there's even that context of like, these aren't old, they're just developed within the context of colonialism and capitalism. Yeah, psychiatry, as as we see it today, psychiatry is not even a century old. Mm -hmm. And I think like one of the big things that I see um, in like mental health discourse on social media is like stigma like the the main goal is like let's break down stigma and that's like the one thing we have to do is just like defeat stigma I know you've posted about this um what do you think about these like anti-stigma campaigns and like the effect that they have it's horrible I hate them so much um so I yeah like you said I have posted about them and they'll like if people want to see more eloquent responses, they can definitely look at those. Um, but I think it's it's very insidious. It comes from this place of like, so, you know, anti-stigma work originally came from psych survivors feeling like they were stigmatized. And then psychiatry went and said like, oh no, we're stigmatized. Like therapy is stigmatized. Psych meds are stigmatized. And we're like, nope you're the one stigmatizing us like you're the stigmatizers and now it's created this whole thing where it's like virtuous to to go to therapy it's virtuous to take psych meds because you're breaking the taboo you're breaking the stigma it's progressive yeah yeah (laughs) yeah and the thing is like now anybody who doesn't do it they're not virtuous that it's wrong that it's selfish and there's so much of this like um rhetoric of like you need to go to therapy or else you're hurting your loved ones and like Mm. like all this like oh this straight men don't go to therapy and that's why they're hurting people and it's like straight men created therapy (laughs) like like who do you think the therapy is straight white men created therapy yeah (laughs) what are you talking about but i think that's like what you just said about straight men created therapy i think 
like for me, again, I feel like sometimes I'm an outsider coming into like the neurodiversity or like the mental health spaces because I've had like a much more like non-Western decolonial lens early on, right? Like in just in terms mm-hmm. of like how I grew up and the community context of like how I've seen mental health dis- like addressed or like distress and pain addressed in different ways. And I can like even trace my gradual like shift to where I was angry that I was not being pathologized. <laughs> Uh, but now looking back, I realize it is actually way more stigmatizing to take this approach because back when like I was already expressing my distress, like I would have different like, you know, parts of my community try to support me and ultimately just tell me like there's nothing wrong with you. Like it makes sense as to how you're responding in this way because the world is really stressful right now and a lot is going on and like you're living under these systems that aren't built for you. So it really does make sense. So let's figure out how to like move through this together. But as I got more and more exposure, really, like through college to like everything neoliberal is when I was like, no, but I'm different. Right. And it was that Mm -hmm. obsession of like wanting to be like something about wanting my struggle to be unique and special and also therefore pathologized because now there was some sort of an explanation, like the like uplifting of like Western medical jargon. Right. Where, again, the idea of objectivity, because now I've had medical terms that are used to describe my, like, incapability of, like, conforming to the system as easily, right? So that yeah. stigma, I realize, is, like, that's what really stigmatized me, like, feeling like there, I had to have all these labels, like there was something fundamentally wrong with me, because until that point, I wasn't even aware, right, that I could fit into, fit into these labels. There were diagnoses I had to get. Yeah, I think that there there's this quote. I won't find it now because I don't want to waste people's time. But um, in the organizing guide um, for psychiatric survivors, where it says something about, you know, they they convinced us that being seen as ill would make us respected and they lied. Um, And I think that that's something, you know, especially young, young girls. um, You know, I was someone that I didn't feel understood by the people around me. I had big emotions. I was a big personality. I was different. You know, and a lot of this came down to, to being queer. A lot of it came down to being mad. A lot of it came down to just like who I am. But I was told by the internet that if I get a diagnosis, that I would be, re- that difference would be respected. That instead of being seen as too sensitive, people would be like, oh, I understand now. And my experience could not have been more opposite. Like it was now I was everything I did was discounted. And before it was discounted for being too sensitive. But now it was even more, you know, you're you're manic, you're depressed, you're this and that. And it really like kind of going back to that topic where we talked about like this whole idea of stigma, like that there's this this new kind of line, like a diagnosis is a privilege. And I I get a lot of pushback when I say this. But I hate that so much because it feels like like my diagnosis was the worst thing that ever happened to me. How dare you say that that was a privilege, that it's a privilege to be locked up, to be drugged, to be discounted and gaslighted everywhere you go for people to have their children taken away from them, to be kicked out of school, to lose their jobs. How dare you say that's a privilege? And they're like, well, it's easier for people who are privileged to get diagnoses. And I'm like, objectively, it's not that people of color women, queer people, any marginalized group is more likely to have a psych diagnosis than the, than their corresponding privileged group. So it's, it's just, that really bothers me a lot. Cause it's, it really, we're taught that 
your life will be better when you get this diagnosis, that things will open for you and everyone will see you for who you are. And it really is that like Mm -hmm. idea of people will see you for who you really are is it's what it speaks to is biosensualism, right? That Mm -hmm. there's a certain way that you entered into this world. And it's like very predetermined that that predetermines how you're going to turn out, right? Like in terms of like, there's this set path you have to follow based on the genetic code that you've been given. And like time and time again, I guess this is why it frustrates me that there isn't a lot of historical like geopolitical context in like the mental health and and like neurodiversity spaces because like we know this when we talk about like race and gender right like where anything about how you're born a certain way has been used to dehumanize people and basically pick a group that's considered inferior then because they're born that way right mm-hmm. and that's again there's so many different ways that that's happened in 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 order to build like hierarchies and create systems of oppression that then justify what that inferior group then has to do right whether that's like domestic labor for women or like enslavement of black people right or like and, and all of the like rhetoric used to why like used to paint why that inferior group is like fundamentally inferior is the same language that goes behind psychiatry right like it's questioning of sanity right there's always an element of like and we always that's why we see like schizophrenia diagnoses attached to like black people or like hysteria attached to like women right like Mm -hmm. there's always this questioning of like sanity and inherently to imply that there's this nature of like these people are subhuman right like that's really what the like purpose is so then you can justify doing whatever right either depriving them of, of agency and resources or just like locking them up right whatever the whatever the punishment is well i think it also depends like what diagnosis that we're talking about because there's kind of like a like a hierarchy, hierarchy of diagnosis like, yeah adhd is a good diagnosis and like you know it's not like those other diagnoses like bipolar or like schizophrenia or whatever yeah. so a lot of people do think like an adhd diagnosis is a privilege because then you can get <laughs> accommodations and like stimulants and medication mm-hmm. and all this stuff and a lot of the like the really big like pop psych books that have come out about ADHD have been like really privileged people like white men (laughs) (laughs) writing about how they were different and they didn't know why then they figured it out and now their lives are perfect so that's Mm -hmm. like that is like a huge strain but I think it like depends what diagnosis yeah we we get that criticism a lot like I think on our work like we have so many people that will comment and be like okay I understand like how you know ADHD or like autism and like OCD or even trauma are like different ways of living or thinking or being and responding to your environment but like that's not the case for those really crazy people right like the ones with the hallucinations the ones with like psychosis Mm -hmm. so there is even like it's interesting to see like this really does manifest almost exactly how any other hierarchy does like like you can see this with race right where people Mm -hmm. that are light-skinned like because of their sheer proximity to whiteness and 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 white supremacy therefore right like that's the appeal and that's the allure of why they treat like darker skinned people like shit right because of there's there's a rung on the ladder that you want to be on and as long as there's someone below you that's like you're like thankful for like the iota of privilege or crumbs that you've been thrown and i see that same like narrative with like diff- like like just said like different hierarchies of diagnoses that you can get yeah and i think that what's important to note with that too is that these hierarchies are fluid like historically because because of the malleability of diagnoses and because 
we write our our um, prejudices into diagnostic categories. You know, schizophrenia right now is at the bottom, not the very, very bottom, but it's on the bottom of the hierarchy because it is, you know, a black man's disorder. But 50 years ago, it was a, a white housewife's disorder and it was not seen. It was very common diagnosis. And the same thing, like, like, um, right now we're seeing this process happen with um, BPD that it is that um, diagnosis is being very highly attributed to queer people right now, especially queer women. Um, and that was not necessarily true before that we are able to kind of like shift these diagnoses and shift them to different vulnerable groups to be like, you know, you had it now, but now we're going to pass it on to someone else. Um, and, and also desirability yeah. by the system. Like I, like I, mm -hmm. Justin, Justin talked about this too. Like I wrote recently about how like ADHD and autism are sometimes now like framed as these like desirable diagnoses that make you like really mm -hmm. good capitalist workers because there's the narrative of having these like secret superpowers, right? Like these traits mm -hmm. that like you can do things that other people can't but only within the umbrella of like what makes you hyper productive, right? So the idea of like yeah. hyper focus, for example, or like mm -hmm. being like very well attuned to certain types of like analytical critical thinking, right? And yeah. now companies like, this is, this is like really interesting when you look mm -hmm. at it, like Fortune 500 companies have like global heads of neurodiversity that literally their job is to go out and hunt for people with, with like specific types of diagnoses yeah. that can be exploited. And especially like like how you say, but it's only in this context. It's also only if you take medication and go to therapy. Right. You know, uh, a medicated person with this diagnosis can rule the world, but an unmedicated, you're gonna right be a mess. Like and high like, functioning, right? High functioning, yeah. Based on what? All, and <laughs> yeah, and it all comes from pharma. Like one interesting thing that like I made a reel about it is like the history of like the. Depression as a diagnosis, it's a super common diagnosis. It used to be no one was diagnosed with depression. Everyone was diagnosed with anxiety. And, but then the anxiety meds hit the market. Mm -hmm. Everything was great. Everyone was diagnosed with anxiety, anxiety meds selling out. And then anxiety meds, big exposés about how dangerous and addictive they were. And so they're like, okay, anxiety meds are going out. We need a new medication. Antidepressants, great. Everybody who has anxiety, now they have depression. And so, like we are the popular diagnoses and what is being seen as desirable, you know, what is at the top of the hierarchy a lot of com time comes from, what meds do we want to sell right now? What meds, you know, it used to be, you know, right. all the antigs, all the benzos, that was like all the moms were on yeah. them. Every yeah. housewife I mean, was there's on songs them and it was about trendy. Benzos, right? Like, I mean, and, but that's, yeah. it speaks to something like what's trending is based on like ability to commodify, monetize and profit off of something the most. Like, mm -hmm. even when you think of, for example, like, blackface right like how now there's a look to influencers and a lot of it is like again commodifying a certain brand and developing like this look that's desirable all of a sudden right like but all of it is in relation to like how much capital can you accumulate and what's the worth of that like particular trait that used to be maybe at some point like demonized and divergent right it's like mm -hmm. but now is desirable as long as it like generates revenue <laughs> yeah exactly so I'm wondering if you have any advice for people who are forced to interface with psychiatry, how can they mm -hmm. advocate for themselves? Yeah, um, that's a really hard question because um, I think that um, interacting with psychiatry can really be a catch-22. Um, so I think 
Um, one thing is, you know, that that um, that camaraderie amongst um, sex survivors is so important that we keep us safe and we protect us um, and that we can't rely um, on, you know, the good therapist and the good psychiatrist to have our backs. Um, and so, you know, I think if you are someone, you know, who has been in a game in the game for a while and you can look out you know, for your fellow patients, I think that's important. Um, I think, um, I always have a lot of trouble talking about, um, honesty and because I, I want people to be able to keep themselves safe. And if that means being dishonest with your therapist, with your psychiatrist, then please do that. Um, but also at the same time, I, if you are honest, with your therapist and your or your psychiatrist that I don't want you to ever feel like it's your fault that you you didn't do the right thing that like I that you, if something happens to you because you said something or you didn't say something um that you shouldn't have to play the game um to be protected um because ultimately it is a game that very often you can lose even if you do play all the right moves. Um, so it's not your fault, no matter what happens. Um, please get connected with other survivors, get connected with peers, um, you know, um, having other people who are going through what you're going through is so, so important. And like, that has been so life-changing for me. You know, if I didn't have that, I probably would still be on meds. Um, and being able to have other people who validate, like, hey, if you don't want to be on the meds, you don't need to be on the meds. Um, that was very important to me. So I think that's important. I think also, um, you know, doing everything you can legally to protect yourself. Um, again, we know that the system is rigged against us. Um, but, you know, I have a, a go binder. I have a psychiatric advance directive. You know, I have, um, you know, like lawyer phone numbers ready. I have trusted friends and family who I know I can call if I was ever in a situation. You should always have, you know, like have your list of people um, and, you know, different different types of people. Like you need to know who's willing to break the law for you. Um, you need to know who's um, who's going to visit you if you get in the hospital. You need to know who is going to, you know, if you have a power of attorney and something like that, um, make sure that it's someone that you can trust to, to not, you know, do things for your own good. That's someone who's going to, who knows what your intentions are and do that preparation beforehand. Um, cause unfortunately this is something that can happen to any of us, even, you know, if you're out of the system, there's always ways that you can end up back there. So just be prepared, talk to your friends and family, um, and don't just wait until you need to, you know, this is something that, you know, my parents are not like the most progressive people in the world. But, like I've had a lot of conversations with my mother about how I feel about meds, how I feel about hospitals. And, you know, over time, I'm able to make her understand like why, if I was ever in a crisis state, why it would be bad to bring me there. And I think that you know, at first I didn't trust her mm -hmm. to make that choice, but now I think I do, you know, now I think 
you know, if I was in a crisis mode, I, I'm not scared that my mom's going to take me to the hospital. And um, I think for and like that's a, important. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think for like a lot of survivors that are also like, like just from collectivist cultures, you know, like non turning to like non-Western systems is like this like shameful, just because the process of like getting integrated into capitalism and white supremacy is so Mm -hmm. much of rejection of like your own roots and your own traditions. Mm -hmm. And in a way to like aspire to anything related to like Americanized Western ways of living. Right. And part of that is like mental health and neoliberalism and individualism. Mm -hmm. But like, basically it's, I feel like a lot of us go through this arc of like, where we come out the other end and realize that like, we've had so many tools before that like allowed us to like express ourselves express our distress like resolve our distress Mm -hmm. in in community in like contexts where we're not pathologized or even like made to feel like we're alone Mm -hmm. in this right and a lot of those like cultural values traditions things that you do in community is like eventually returning to them right and like reclaiming them Mm -hmm. in a in a context where now you have the critical understanding that you need to, to to know your history and like the like political context that you exist in but I think reclaiming that is like you have you now have all these tools that you know open up to you that aren't just this reliance on like western medicine to be able to like find hope right yeah and I think we need to get creative with it too like I think that a lot of times um I get a lot of people asking like so what are the alternatives and there isn't one it can be so many different things for people. Like it's not just like, I think peer run alternatives are immensely important and they will always be part of my life, but that's not the only thing. Like it it doesn't have to resemble therapy. It doesn't have to look anything right. like therapy, what you yeah. do, you know, part of cooking could be part of your practice. Yeah. You know, for me, yeah. one thing that I did is I, um, when I came off the psych meds, my akathisia, I was really struggling with dealing with frustration. Um, and so what I did is I started working on, um, I, I'd, I'd done it before, but I now do furniture flipping and it, it helped me grow through that and to mm-hmm. learn how to deal with frustration, how, how to problem solve instead of just like giving up and breaking down. And like, that's something like, no, that doesn't resemble therapy. Like no therapist would be like, you should pick up furniture flipping. That yeah. would help. Yeah. There is um, no like conventional, yeah. socially acceptable, right? Like collectivist tool of like real like community healing and like, and I always think about how we already have tools that have been developed over like thousands of years that have mm-hmm. been developed in context of community where the purpose of them was to actually take care of each other. Like that's the founding purpose, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to the founding purpose of psychiatry, which was to like subjugate and control people. So mm-hmm. it may, it would make more sense to like turn to like, like traditional cultural ritualistic roots right Mm -hmm. to where the purpose was to like keep people healthy (laughs) and that's why these like tools were developed within that context and that foundation matters and like shapes the entire and I think that's like the main difference between why like capitalist colonial approaches are so individualistic and everything else is so community and collectivist oriented right like that's a biggest contrast of like different foundations different purposes to control and dominate people you have to have them alone right and people are stronger when they're together so yeah and I think that that's an important point that it's 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 we can't when we're talking about alternatives, we can't just talk about individualistic things because that's the problem we're trying to solve. Um, and so, like, um, there's this one example that like I was in a training, a facilitated training for this peer support group. And they told the story about someone who came in and they were talking about their feelings and they were having a hard time and they were they were trying to get down to like, what do you want? What what 
would make your life something that you wanted to stay in. She said, I just want to walk into a room and feel like I belong. And that is something that you can't get from individual work. You can't therapize your way into having community. Community is a human need. Community, friendship, family, belonging. These are all things that you can't just like do the do the work inside yourself and magically have that, that we need cultural shifts. We need social shifts and we need to build that collectively. That's not something that I can get in a self-help book, but it is something that I can get when I talk to other people and we can build it together. You know, mutual aid is now becoming something that we're seeing more people be knowledgeable about and understand And that is something that I really hope to see grow more and more people become used to this idea that it's, it's not something individualized that we as a community, all of things to give to each other and not collective space. And that's an alternative to psychiatry is to build healthy, loving communities. Right. And I think that also like speaks to like the idea of like, mutual aid and mutualism and cooperation and collaboration, right? Like under the umbrella, I guess, of like anarchist praxis, like the other thing is like the diversity of approaches to like addressing your distress. Like I think I thought I talk a lot about how like we're not meant to have this one size fits all approach to mental health because like that it makes sense, right? Like our that's why you have so much resistance and oppression when like multiple communities with different cultures and traditions are homogenized under like a nation state, right? It forces people to fit this like one monolith and one answer is never enough in any context, right? Like you always need diff, and we always talk about this in context of like community organizing where like local approaches are, are like local answers come out of like addressing the like emerging needs of people that you're in community with, right? And whatever one community might need, depending on the ecosystem that they exist in, does not match the needs of another community in a fundamentally different ecosystem, right? So it's like, it, you need a plethora of diversity of approaches in order to be able to like collectively have so many options that people can turn to that work for their context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's one more thing I want to ask about kind of mm-hmm. changing the topic. Um, That's okay. But going back to something that you said about how you have to be careful what you say. Um, mm-hmm. And I saw that you were working on a project with Mad in America about um, suicide hotlines that trace callers and then like non-consensually call the police on them. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so I, um, when I was in college, I did um, one of my final papers on um, like non-consensual suicide prevention responses and how they were bullshit and they were not working. Um, And so from that, I learned that a lot of suicide hotlines were calling themselves confidential, calling themselves anonymous, but were call tracing, were um, calling the police on callers without their consent. Um, And there was actually, you know, people who were reporting back that they went to these trainings and they were told your first priority is to fill out a risk assessment and trace the call, that it was more about that than about actually providing support. And I wanted to um, be able to educate people about that because I think everyone should have a right to an informed choice. 
And then I found out um, that Mad in America was working on um, finding suicide hotlines that didn't practice non-consensual active rescue, making this information available to people. So um, I reached out and I joined into the project. And so what we did is last year, we sought out to find every suicide hotline in the country that we could find um, and then survey them on what their policies around call, call tracing and police intervention were. Um, and then we published a directory so that people could find it. Um, and one of the things that included that and also is there are 180 lines in the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network. Um, and if you don't know that it's part of that network, you won't know that it's part of that. Like it doesn't say that they're part of that network. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so they all have the same policies. So we had that included. Um, and we didn't hear back from every line. We're still working on it. We're still always looping back, trying to get responses. And then this year, we also started doing um, like a survey and interviews. Um, so I've been working on, um, we put out a survey for people who had used um, suicide hotlines and, you know, asked about things like, were you aware of these policies? What do you think? It means when someone says their policy is this. You, um, how did you feel when you used the call? Did you feel safe? Um, what risks did you um, feel like when you called the line and stuff like that um, to try and um, understand, you know, what what the experience was for people. You know, we can talk about the systemic, but what does it actually look like individually? Um, so I'm working on um, an article to kind of go through those survey responses. Um, and I'm excited for that to come out. Um, yeah, I think it's a really important project because I think that everyone deserves the right to informed consent. That's the thing that I'm like, that's the basis of so much of what I talk about um, is I think that these risks shouldn't exist at all. But I think if they do exist, I think people deserve to know that before they call a suicide hotline, they should know what what situations would possibly lead to police coming to my house? You should be able to make that choice yourself before you call. Um, so yeah, so I'm excited to be the part of the project. I do want to say um, I am not a representative of Mad America, so my opinions are my own. So anything else to say in the podcast doesn't necessarily represent, you know, journalistic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but yeah, it's been really great working with them. Um, and I'm excited to kind of see the project as it develops and I hope that people use the directory that exists. It's really easy to use. It's on the Pan America website. Um, so if you're ever using a hotline and you want to know what their policies are, it's a great place to check. Yeah, we can link to it also in the yes. show notes so people yeah. can find it. Yeah. And we also like uh, the same approach that you're talking about in terms of informed consent. I think like like we've done a post about it. We're going to do a whole episode on, on psychotropic drugs. And mm -hmm. I think that's like how we think mm -hmm. about like why we should talk about like the so many studies that have reported and all of the harmful effect of mm -hmm. different psychotropic drugs because yeah like we're not telling people not to use things but like you have the right mm -hmm. to know everything right including like the pharmaceutical incentives including how this feeds into like the systemic backing of capitalism to be able to understand yeah. all of the forces at play when you choose something right so yeah. that's really what informed consent is and I think that's ironic mm -hmm. when we get a lot of criticism from people that use meds that say you know mm -hmm. you shouldn't be talking badly about 
Mets, that's actually like deceptive, right? Like you're just real, and that's really doing the pharmaceutical companies that already do that a favor, right? Where they just really over call yeah. and oversell any like anything, right? And then hide all mm-hmm. of these like things that are framed as like minor side effects, but really are 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 like just effects yeah. that that happen yeah. quite quite yeah. often. <laughs> exactly, and it all comes down to this idea of like it's for your own good that you don't know what's right for you. And like, cause I get that all the time. It's like, mm-hmm. like, I'll be like, you need to inform people of all this. And they're like, well, but if people know they're not going to want to take the meds. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's the freaking exactly. point. Like, yeah. like you, if, if people aren't comfortable with that risk, that's a choice that should be like, that's not something that like, like if people don't want to take a med, whether it's the right choice or not, it's their choice. And, and you don't get to hide or deceive or downplay side effects because you you think, oh, well, if they know, if they have all the information, then the choice they'll make is not the one that I would agree with. So therefore it's the wrong choice. And that's just like, I don't know, but um, and like Mad America is actually a great resource because they have a whole bunch of like, they publish the studies that aren't being necessarily, because a lot of times like these pharmaceutical companies, like, they push certain studies and then cover right. up other studies. Right. And so I, I, I've really appreciated research like that. Anatomy of an epidemic is like my freaking Bible. Like it, <laughs> it's like having that historical of being like, this is the full picture. Right. And it's mm-hmm. not necessarily saying that none of these have like, that there's never been anyone who's benefited from these. Right. Um, but it is saying like, this is what the actual science is right and i'll also say in that like vein something that i think i've had to like increasingly make more people aware of is the like the fact that like psychiatric drugs are not really in the same realm of other drugs that treat other physical Mm -hmm. ailments and illnesses right there's always the narrative that like you know taking a psychiatric medication for whatever like psychiatric diagnosis is kind of like taking insulin like insulin right yeah and it's not it's really not right (laughs) like on on multiple levels I mean, not even a little bit. <laughs> right. So like everything from the fact that you can actually like quantify and like have biomarkers that can like pick up things mm-hmm. like, you know, diabetes or like cholesterol or heart disease or hypertension. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you can. These are quantifiable real things. And mm-hmm. there's nothing like that that exists for psychiatry. There's no test. There's no diagnosis that you can run. It's a it's a list you have on a piece of paper. Right. Objectively, mm-hmm. that doesn't pick up on anything. And in the same way, I think for treatments, the amount of research that exists, right, on like other drugs, for example, and even then you have like 10 years, 20 years down the line, new reports mm-hmm. that come out of like, for example, long-term effects, right, that we could have never predicted early on with like clinical trials. And the amount, like the proportionate amount of like benefits to side effects, right? And I think that's what's really interesting to examine with like medical drugs that are not psychiatric mm-hmm. drugs. It's like you will have like 0.001% of like rare occurrences mm-hmm. of these things, right? And those have to be spelled out. But with psychiatric drugs, there's drugs out there that are so popular where there's actually no real proof of efficacy, right? And you have yeah. a mountain of data that actually shows that they're hurting people and causing a lot of like long-term harm. And it's still like a very popular drug, right? So I think that balance yeah. is there where like there really isn't that much clear evidence and research that shows that these drugs are efficacious and beneficial in that they're not, you know, they're benefiting people more than they're actually hurting and harming people. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like psychiatry has written this story and there's like so many plot holes because like they're like, first of all, they're like, okay, so there's all these drugs and 
every single one of them pretty much when you look at the studies they're like they're really only designed for short-term use they're not safer um or effective for long-term use pretty much all of them say that and then they're like well you have a disease that you're going to have for the rest of your life and you can never get rid of it and Mm -hmm. the only way you can treat it is with these medications so you have to take them long term and i'm like well which is it like (laughs) so now you're taking you're like okay so this med is only for short-term use but i have to take it long term because if i ever stop I'm going to have a mental breakdown. The way they justify that is like hopping classes of drugs, right? That's like the approach they take to like, oh, all you have to do is just switch between different antidepressants, different like Mm anti-anxiety meds, right? Because inherently each one of them will always lose efficacy and lead you to, you know, growing dependence Mm -hmm. and needing higher doses, right? (laughs) Like my big, this is the line that I always hate um, is like where they say, oh, you know, um, antidepressants aren't good for bipolars. And this is what it is, is we know a large majority of antidepressants are known to cause mood swings, mania, whatever you want to call it, symptoms that look like bipolar disorder. Um, And so what they do is instead of saying, oh, this antidepressant caused this thing, they're like, oh, well, you were always bipolar. The antidepressant is just bad for bipolar. So it made it worse. Mm -hmm. And so now we have to put you on the bipolar meds. And (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's like you're, you're prescribing a med, which then causes all these other issues. So then you prescribe meds to cure the issues that the original meds caused. And you're blaming the patient by being like, oh, it's because you have bipolar. It's like, no, it's and because I mean, these medications. <laughs> and, and that's the grander context of what capitalism does, right? It tries to sell you solutions to the problems that it intentionally created so that you have to now rely on these commodified solutions. And also we talked about it last episode in the context of like uh, uh, like any other like realm that you think of where you, the problem is created, but you're not explicitly naming it, right? It's like these studies that try to show that there's like a real biological basis to psychiatric diagnoses. A lot of them uh, like have medicated populations, right? Their disease population are people that have been on long-term psychotropic drugs. And like they classify that as like, but but their brains were always like that because they have this diagnosis, right? As opposed to like these drugs actually very much so really change the like neuroatomical basis of your brain. So a lot of the effects that you're seeing or variation come from these drugs, right? And I think especially in the context of like antipsychotics, that's also really true where like people have exacerbation of different like psychosis symptoms. And that's just justified as like you, this shows how much you need this drug, right? Like you really need this forever as opposed to like, wait, this drug just made your life a lot more difficult. And yeah, yeah, that's what a doctor said to me. You know, I I was going to a neurologist for migraines because I developed, um, really bad flash induced migraines after withdrawal. Um, and you know, at this point I was kind of early on in my journey. And so I wasn't sure if I should say anything. So I said, you know, I did have, I've been going through withdrawal from a a psych med and I lied. I said that I was put on it because of the migraines, but whatever, who cares? And he was like, well, withdrawal should only last one to two weeks. I was like, that's objectively not true, but um, (laughs) it had been like, like three months. And he's like, oh, so it's just your original mental illness symptoms coming back. I said, I've, I've never had these symptoms before. Uh-huh. And, and he's like, oh, you, you probably just don't remember. And it's like, oh my that's what it is. It's, it's you get the med and then they take you cold turkey off of it. And then you have withdrawal symptoms and they're like, see, you need that medication because this is what you look like without it. And it's like, no, that's withdrawal. And, you know, when I first came off the meds, this was before I even had Booksmart Bimbo, I made like a little video on my own personal page. And I was like, 
you would never, if someone was like in detox from heroin, you would never be like, see, this is proof you need heroin. Like you yeah. are a mess. Like, no yeah. one would ever say that. And I'm like, that's what we're saying to people yeah. in withdrawal yeah. from psych meds. Like there's yeah. so many like cautionary tales and horror stories of like, oh, they went off their med and then they jumped off a building. And I'm like, I wonder why. Like, Right. But that narrative of like, oh, you must therefore just need the system. It's interesting because when people turn to like, other coping mechanisms right like there's sometimes more normalized idea of like oh something else is causing you to turn to this right like something mm-hmm. going on in the world something about your sadness some stressor is causing you to turn to like alcohol right mm-hmm. and now there's like a little bit more of the normalization around like and there was an era where like there was a hardcore need to prove that alcoholism is like some genetic encoded thing right there's also that time period where addictions mm-hmm. were trying to be bioessentialist but mm-hmm. now with like drugs it is the like people don't really question the why as much right like why are people mm-hmm turning having to turn to this so let's question like the thing that they're running from and the the, the situation that they're existing in that's caused them to turn to this right there's like it's interesting Mm -hmm. how that's so normalized because of the use of like how frequent Mm -hmm. and normalized now like psych drugs are that like it's just something we do like there's so many jokes and like pop culture based on the fact that we're all on fucking antidepressants right yeah yeah like i'm actually just i was just working on a post before i came on here you know, talking about like how I ended up on psych meds um, and looking back and being like, how could anybody not connect the dots and be like, because what happened is I, I I don't know if you guys are familiar with every 15 seconds. Um, well, it's this absolute nightmare, barbaric thing that public schools do where they have a pretend car crash where one of your you know classmates lies in a pool of their own blood and then they have a pretend funeral where their parents come in and cry it's very oh, like a play yeah for to like I discourage was, but was it wasn't in like one of those it had, they had like the actual like real jaws of life in a real oh helicopter take this is the way the grim reaper walking around the school it's the what most traumatic what are thing in the schools? whole why what are these white schools yeah. doing? It is ter- a, a boy fainted on top of me landed on top of me it was the worst thing i've ever experienced but i i developed like a debilitating fear of car crashes after that obviously because i literally just watched my classmates die in front of me and um and so and that's what got me on the meds they're like oh like you have this and i'm like how can no one connect the dots that the girl who was having you know huge intrusive thoughts about car crashes you know who had just been to this program two months ago how did they not connect the dots that that was what was going on like, how do you not consider that social repression? You'd be like, you must have been born with this. Like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to, but I mean, but the I don't know what to tell you is what gives psychiatry so much power, right? Mm-hmm. Because there is no answer that gives power to then it must be something like unexplainable that's now being codified into the language yeah. of medicine, right? The mental health crisis. Right. Like, and it is the need to like when the cause of the problem is the current like system and power and you can't name it because you that's how they're designed to work then mm-hmm. the only thing you can do is make people feel like there's something else happening right and like we understand how like certain like religions have been manipulated to exercise this kind of control over people right like to where like the source of their pain and their suffering is like some hypothetical unknown rather than the active oppression that they're facing every day and it is it's like this like god like if we don't know then it but that's how like for example 
courts use it, right? If there isn't mm-hmm. an explainable motive, right, motive for a crime or whatever, it has to be insanity in some context of like a psychopath or a sociopath, right? Like there's always that stuff brought up yeah. to explain anything that's quote unquote not not explainable, but has to require as understanding like the sociopolitical context of what happened. Yeah. There's this quote in um, Jim Godstein's book um, where he's talking about, you know, his patient that he was defending um, who, you know, thought that he was Jesus. And like, that's like a very common thing. And everyone, you know, that's they're like, well, that's a real crazy person that he thinks he's Jesus. And he said something that I hadn't thought about before that I thought was so powerful. He was like, believing that he was Jesus gave him a meaning to the prosecution that he was facing. This was someone who had been so abused by the system, had been just like absolutely trampled on. And like that gave meaning to that, mm-hmm. to believe that he was prosecuted for for that. Um, and I was like, see, they're, they're, like even the stuff that people think are really crazy, like that, like that's really crazy. Like people say that that stuff has meaning too. Like there's so much and it doesn't necessarily have to be a meaning that you understand, but things can have. I think that's key. Like it doesn't have to be something that you understand. Right. Mm -hmm. Because there's this like with individualism, there's this idea that like you, everything you know is everything that you know and that you have to know. Right. Like that's, yeah. (laughs) So therefore like everything has to, you you judge everything within that framework. And then Mm -hmm. you're also trapping yourself in this like arena of like constantly valid, uh, narratives that validate you stay and things that disturb you leave right and Mm -hmm. it's just interesting because I think a lot about like you said meaning I think a lot of like the work that I'm doing to try to think of like alternatives is focused around like because there's this investment and validation that we seek from that we need right like we need validation to survive Mm -hmm. like we need to feel like we're a part of something we mean something our existence means something right but the problem with living under systems of oppression especially those that like deprive you of like basic survival is you turn to the system constantly for validation right because at baseline you're turning to them to like beg for a job that would give you basic survival resources to live but Mm -hmm. at at that point on all of your like worth and like self image is attached to gaining approval within systems right so people spend their whole life trying to like aspire at like get to arbitrary metrics of capital success in their careers right Mm -hmm. just because it gives them meaning so i think so much of like this collective crisis of like our distress and pain which is real right like there is like sky high amounts of like collective distress that we're experiencing right now under Mm late-stage capitalism and i think a lot of that is like that attachment to where you're finding your self-worth and meaning but then the solution then comes from realigning and finding meaning and validation and and worth in things that are real right that are not social constructs things that are real like mm-hmm. community like your environment right like plants animals things that you enjoy right creativity art like tangible mm-hmm. like culture tradition right and just because we need that meaning, we need validity and we need meaning in our lives. But finding that in things that are real makes sense as to why that would make you happy. But finding that in like oppressive systems that are designed to never make you happy is like why mm-hmm. so much of us feel empty if we're not succeeding within the framework of the system. Right. Because our whole yeah. identity is attached to it. Yeah. And if you find meaning elsewhere, then you're crazy. Right. And yeah. And I think that's a like a way of how a lot of spiritual stuff is framed, too. Right. Like 
if you don't understand it, if you don't understand why a certain culture or religion is, is, is turning to a certain ritual or religious practice, right? Because it's one, not rooted in objectivity, right? It's not something that science can prove, but it's ironic because in order to like really practice like the scientific method, you have to just acknowledge there's always going to be majority of the stuff that you just cannot understand. Like you will never understand how the universe operates. Mm -hmm. You will never like these questions, like we don't know where we go when we die, right? Like science does not answer that. It can't answer that. That doesn't mean there's an, there isn't an answer, right? And like people are trying Mm -hmm. their best to like make sense of that. And that's okay. Like, however it is, because we don't have alternatives. (laughs) Yeah. And I think especially like within psychiatry, like, like religion is so important for, and spirituality is so important for so many people, but only the ones that we can understand are respected. You know, like if you, if you, you're like, oh, if you're a Christian or if you're a Muslim or like whatever, if you have like this set belief system, but like if you believe that you are a prophet, then you're crazy. And it's like, who the hell is to say that they're not? Like, why um, are right. you allowed to believe in that this is your prophet, but they can't believe that they're their right. own or like, just the idea of the yeah. fish fish bowl right like like a fish inside a fish bowl the way that they mm-hmm. see the world from inside the fish bowl is like fundamentally so distorted but like that's just what they see so that's their world right and then you think about like do bacteria in a petri dish understand the world outside the petri dish absolutely not their whole world is like what they're seeing mm-hmm. right but like that's like the level of like humility we need to have because we have no idea how any of this works. Like why we're really yeah. here? What the hell is the universe? This guy, like there's so many unanswered mm-hmm. questions that we can turn to to humble ourselves about like how it's okay mm-hmm. that someone else believes in different things than you do because that's their like experience of how they exist in the world, right? Like that's their perspective. Mm-hmm. You can both be right. You just have to understand that you're looking from your fishbowl and they're looking from theirs, right? And like together mm-hmm. we can paint a more like collectivist picture of all these diverse narratives, right? that we share Mm -hmm. and like teach each other different traditions and like share resources but that's a different like fundamentally different context like even for example religions that talk about like psychosis in different ways right Mm -hmm. like shamanism and like hearing voices and like what that really means like those are definitely like demonized especially more than like monotheistic abrahamic religions just because it's like making this and even within then if you think about like islam right like there's all these hierarchies within religions then right because then there's like a branch of islam called sufism for example which is about mysticism and like like literally inducing a state of psychosis to be able to like connect with yourself in your community Mm -hmm. right so it's like it's interesting how all of these hierarchies then play into what we call the solution as opposed to many solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's like a, a really important point that there isn't, there doesn't have to be one way of, of moving about the world. We don't have to say this is good and normal and then this is sick. Right. We can say like, if you're not hurting anyone, who the hell cares? Right. And even then it's like, and within the framework of abolition, I guess, because we're talking about that lens, right? Like, even if you are hurting someone, the question you need to ask isn't like, what's wrong with you? It's like, Mm -hmm. what is the like, what is the environment that you live in? What are the things that you've experienced? And what is the Mm -hmm. social political context of your existence that helps explain, Mm -hmm. right, what happened? And how can you actually be held accountable in a way that's not punitive, right? And carceral. Yeah. And create actual solutions. Right. The target, the root of the problem that aren't just about like, and that's what ultimately I think that's the common ground between like any sort of abolition, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. the state aims to basically exile people and 
like anyone that's different, right? Whether that's like the idea of criminality or like being insane, right? And the idea is then that treatment or punishment happens in isolation, right? You're separating them from the rest of society. Mm-hmm. You're treating them. You're like subjugating them differently. And the core of the crisis in both those situations, right? The vi- We always talk about how violence is contextual, right? Like mental distress is contextual. And you're going to have different forms of anguish and pain and distress that manifest as a result of the like social and environmental conditions that you're submerged in, right? So unless you address those, like the social conditions that lead to violence, right? Social conditions that lead to mental distress, mm-hmm. it's like impossible to actually address the distress itself. <laughs> like you're just going to keep repeating yeah. these cycles that go on forever. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to add something. Um, when you had asked about like, what can people do to advocate for themselves if they're experiencing force? And I wanted to just like do a little um, plug for the Mind Freedom International Shield program um, that they, um, I'm signed up for it. Um, and I think, you know, people, if you, it's a great thing to sign up for where you're basically put into this system. And, you know, if you're experiencing force, you can reach out and others will help you. Um, but also if other people um, are experiencing force, then you will get, um, you know, alerted and like they give like action items and there's, you can volunteer to be an organizer or you can just like get the emails and then take the action items. Um, but I've been posting them on my Instagram every time I get them. Um, and it's just, you know, it's really important that we can be, you know, on social media and we could be talking about these things, but if we're not actually doing anything um, when our community members are experiencing this force, then we can't like what we're doing is meaningless. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to get involved, um, but that's um, something that, you know, I believe in a lot, like directly helping people get out. And I think that's the goal of like the solutions, mm-hmm. right? Repoliticizing and turning to mm-hmm. like the, we have we have thousands of years of like movement history to know that like mobilizing mm-hmm. together, organizing, like political mobilizing mm-hmm. is a solution. And I think that it's like high time that that enters the arena of like mental health and like mm-hmm. anything related to our mind, right? Yeah, yeah. I just got a, a email today that they're looking for more volunteers. So definitely if you got, if anybody listening is interested, Cool. We can also link to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you so much for talking with us. This was like such an yeah, interesting conversation. Thank you. It's been nice. <laughs> Thanks for listening to D-Land. Be sure to subscribe to our Substack so you don't miss any extra content and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps us a lot. If you have tips, suggestions, or questions, or maybe you want to come on the show, send us an email at disorderland at gmail.com.